Hello and welcome to Happy Place, the show where I, Fern Cotton, discover how my guests get into their groove. And today we're off to meet the lead singer of one of my favourite bands of the 90s, Skunk and Ancy. It is, of course, Skin. I don't carry the weight of other people's racism or sexism or homophobia or transphobia. I'm not carrying their weight for them because they can't carry it themselves. And I was sort of viewed it like they're like this giant boulder in front of me. And it's a very simplistic approach to it, but actually it works quite well because I think it's important for me to be comfortable and happy and strong. And if I'm carrying all this weight, I just get weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker because it's impossible for me to carry all of the weight. Now she mixes her singing with DJing and has written a wonderful book that I just love. It's called It Takes Blood and Guts and it recounts some of the key moments leading to the success of Skunk and Nancy and also her way of dealing with the prejudice she faced as a black queer woman fronting a rock band. Plus an inspirational moment with Judy Dench that is unmissable. It's a really lovely chat and I really think that you'll enjoy it. I hope you do. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And now, here's the show. I'm, I'm so thrilled to have you on the podcast. I've been such a fan since I was a teenager. So this for Aww. me is just a total joy. How are you? How are you doing today? I'm actually very well. Um, my, for my birthday, which was like last week, uh, my other half got me a barbecue. So we've just been like barbecuing every day. It's I life-changing. It. How has this weird year been for you? I mean, normally we would be doing this face-to-face, this whole series pretty much is going to be you know with me remotely and my guests remotely which is a massive shame as I'd love to sit face to face with you but how how has it been for you you haven't been able to tour to play live how has that affected you some things have been a bit of a silver lining and some things have been really quite kind of weird I mean the way that musicians work you're kind of set up to record an album tour that album for a year and a half and then do nothing while you kind of record another album and do other things for like another year and a half because you can't tour every year all of the time for the for the punter it gets a bit boring so we're kind of set up to have long periods where we're not doing anything but at the same time there's not doing anything and there's not doing anything Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know so there's a few discoveries I've made like I really don't like the creative process of being creative on Zoom for me is not as inspirational and I haven't really been able to write good stuff in collaboration with someone when they're not in the same room. But at the same time, I have had a lot of time, like my partner and I are much closer together, which which is great, you know. Um, and then 
Also, you do have a lot of re- reflection time. You know, why am I here? What am I doing? What I'm doing? How am I doing it the right way? I don't think I've stopped for this long in about 30 years. Oh you know, God. I've always been doing something. So that's been actually quite a nice silver lining. It's weird because I think me, the artist, I'm set up to not do anything for a while. But I think for people like our crew and other people working in our industry that are very close to us, they literally just go from band to band to band. So for them, I think it's been a lot harder because, yeah. you know, probably for those wives that I haven't seen. Them. Yeah, the wives <laughs> are like, yeah, the the They're like, you know, the wives are like, oh, when are you going back on tour, love? <laughs> <laughs> well, true. My husband's a musician, so we're kind of getting to that point where we're both like, oh my God, we've seen each other every day for the last six months. Yeah. It's not normal. Obviously, you, you have been highly creative because I've read your amazing book that I was lucky enough to get an early copy of how was it sitting down working through that process of of writing your your whole life story out because I I sort of think about it a lot I I write a lot myself but the thought of sitting and looking over your whole life seems a little terrifying to me how did you find that I think I think you're right but I think it, it came in kind of pieces because we've been working on this for like two years and but lockdown made it even more we had a lot of work to do in a very short space of time because this is the first book I've written and I wrote it with Lucy O'Brien who is a fantastic journalist she's written a few books also she's a good friend of mine she was there in the very early skunk years so I think without her it would have been terrifying because you know she was able to kind of structure it in a way that I that put, put she kind of made it into much smaller sections that I had to write so instead of starting from this perspective I'm going to write my whole life story from start to finish it was like well what about these years and this section and this section and once you broke it down into sections actually it was quite it was a lot easier a lot more fun um, and then the memories come flooding through because it's only when you go back on things and you check those pictures out and you have those conversations there's so much stuff I've completely forgotten I did mm. like just it, it, memories escaped me and I was remembering stuff all the way after the book was edited I was like oh but there's this story about how Playboy tried to get me to be in their it being their magazine and, and I was like oh it's, the, book, the book's done so this is how amazing story they didn't get put in the book you'll have to do a part two <laughs> um having your your life in a big chunk like that and now it is in in book form did you sort of notice patterns that have emerged throughout your life because you're able to sort of look at it as a whole? You know, were there sort of lessons that you've had to repeatedly learn that have come back to you? Or have there been things that you've sort of relentlessly struggled with or found easy? Did you notice any of those patterns emerging? Absolutely. I definitely had a pattern or I have a pattern of putting myself in situations that I've got to dig myself out of. Right. Um, And that seemed to be something I frequently do. Mm. (laughs) Um, And I realised at certain points in my life why that that kind of came back later on, like the the whole story of what week as I am that song is about um and I guess when I was writing the book and I kind of put two and two together because there's things when terrible things happen to you have a a a survival mechanism that puts it in a perfect place so you can move on and you can move forward and it's only when you look at some of the things you do afterwards that you realize that there were what happened before was a massive catalyst so I had a lot of kind of you know, getting on the bridge and ending up realizing that, you know, this is why I got to Z because of A, B and C, you know, and, and I do, I guess, yes, the most dramatic thing was this idea that I, I really um, 
there's a lot of vulnerability and there's a lot of fear and the way that I counter that is to just do it anyway yeah I love <laughs> and, that and you know just kind of be like I'm I feel very out of my comfort zone whether it's like the masked singer or whether it's getting on stage I seem to always be out of my comfort zone but by the end of it I make myself comfortable and I think that there's this whole kind of thing of make in my life where there's a lot of mistakes and I think in our culture it's so strange how we put so much negativity on making mistakes when in actual fact that's the best thing you can do with your life is just go through a series of wonderful mistakes because it's you know it's it's, well, it's a journey of what's happening in the, in the process of making that mistake that's the learning curve and that's how you become wiser and, and more interested and more confident because um now I'm kind of like if I do something and I fall flat on my face I don't really care that much there's a little bit of embarrassment and that's more to do with ego but I'm not so um smacked in the head by it as I would have been when I was younger because I know that actually you just you just move on don't you this is it but that's su- that's such a liberating thing you're absolutely right there's this sort of weird double-edged sword of uh, I guess how the media works, but also social media portraying yeah. perfectionism that, of course, doesn't exist. And also that being teamed yeah. with people being much more judgmental today, perhaps than ever, because we can be vocally judgmental via the digital world. So it stops people making mistakes. And that's a massive shame, because like you say, that's how that's how you learn and grow and expand and then perhaps find something completely new that you weren't even looking for. Exactly. It's the most, it's the most important thing of your character is to overcome mistakes and overcome challenges. But if you have such a fear of going into it because of how you think people are going to respond to you, then you have a very, you end up being having a very safe life and being in a very safe place. Um, and I, yeah, I just, you know, with my, my first boyfriend, he was like, you know, not, I wouldn't say he was pure evil, but he was really horrible. If I hadn't gone from that, I, I wouldn't have learned how to see that coming in a way. And I think I've avoided a lot of situations since because of my, my, because of that experience, which I'm talking about in the book. So I just think it's vital. And I just think that we're in a society now that, as you said, social media is full of people who have incredibly strong opinions with no research and no backup and no um, training at all. So our lives have been moulded by people who have no idea what they're talking about, <laughs> you know, having and not having and not being able to also have the empathy gene where they actually yes. can't stand back and look at you and go, oh, you know, yeah, but look on this side of it. Look on, they're just like, oh, you're horrible, you're horrible, you're horrible, you're disgusting, you're terrible. And you're kind of like, yeah, but so are you and so are you and so are you at various points in your life. That's a shame about social media how it, and how it is. I think we're just so much more careful. It's a, it's a discussion, you know, that road that you're on to discussion when you have to put lots of different opinions out there and you may say one thing in the road to finding your opinion in that discussion that may ruin your career forever. So um, I think there's good and, po- good and, bo- and sad points to that, you know, the, uh, of how social media works. Funny enough, I was moaning this morning about algorithms. <laughs> I was having this mm. big conversation about how algorithms are ruining our life because I'm constantly having, having my own opinion fed back to me. And I don't want my own opinion fed back to me. I don't want the things I've already bought fed back to me. You know, don't you think? It's just very polarising. 
Yeah, I'd never thought of it like that. Well, that's exactly what's happening, isn't it? We just keep getting fed the same stuff that we already think or know, and that's not interesting. Yeah, because the way the algorithms work is whatever you like, they, they just, you know, it's, it's put people in their own little bubbles. Everyone's yeah. in a tiny little bubble. And I think it's very, and that's why I think the world has just become so polarised no, nowadays, because you only hear your own opinion echoing back to you, like it's being in a giant skin echo chamber. Ooh, <laughs> so, evil algorithms. I've never thought about that skin. That's so... So interesting and so apparent, yeah. I think, for all of us. I love that. It's, um, it's funny because if I think back to my own teen years, um, you know, certainly the first time I heard the song Week, which just sort of like hit me in the face. What is this? This is so different. This feels like I need to be part of whatever this is. I think, you know, for all of us teenagers at the time, we had this um, undercurrent of understanding that, that this is what you were about and that you were somebody that was going to take risks and that you were somebody who was going to be outside of your own comfort zone without being able to necessarily, you know, articulate that or, or really understand it. But we definitely felt there was something interesting going on and really fresh when Skunk and Nancy came on the scene. And, and, and you've always been a, a huge influence especially for females. Like I told my mum this morning that you were coming on. She's like, oh my God, I love her. She's so cool. <laughs> You've always had this influence over women. And I wonder if, if in the 90s, certainly when you were you know, exploding onto the scene, if you, if you felt that, if you, if you understood that influence that you had over people. I mean, I think in those early years, literally, you're just on a steam train going downhill and holding on the back of it for dear life. I mean, there's not much kind of um, analysis going on. But I think that, um, I mean, at the time, it was Britpop, Britpop, Britpop. And we were kind of like an alternative to that. And I think that there was always, there's also like a kind of a laddie, laddie kind of thing that we were kind of almost an alternative to that. I was aware of appealing to people who were kind of like me or the same as me. But I think it's more to do with a kind of undercurrent of, I have three brothers and no sisters. And then I was a band with three boys. And so in some ways, I was kind of seeking out female energy. Mm. You know? I was just, especially all of the crew was female. The only person in our group in, in those early days that wasn't female was our manager. The woman who was running all, you know, the woman at the top. And then there was me, then there was nobody else. Occasionally catering staff, you know. So we had women managing us, women feeding us, and then women being the front of it. And then everybody else was men. So I think in some ways, I was um, seeking seeking out female energy and seeking out uh, the voice of woman and, re and reminding myself I wasn't just one of the boys all the time because I yeah. can be one of the boys. So, and, and now I've changed that, you know, now there's a lot more women, women on the tour and you know, on, on the tour bus. But in those days, it was just a very male-dominated thing. So I was very subconsciously kind to surround myself with women who were like my sisters, my friends, and, and that I was very close to. And I think I've done that all of my life because I was always around boys. Mm. No, you, I think everybody sort of sensed that. Like, it, it felt... It just felt exciting to see you doing what you, what you were doing. And, and you've always made being a rock star look very easy, you know, and very natural. But having read your book and, and the, the title hints at it, it takes blood and guts. It obviously hasn't been an easy ride or something that's just sort of unfurled without struggle. Um, and even yeah. in a speech that you did more recently, when, when you picked up an award, you said, you know, it's been a fight and it, and it always will be. And I wonder if there have been moments or if you feel like this today that you just don't have the energy to fight. You don't want to you don't want it to be a fight anymore. Um, those are when you write the best songs. <laughs> mm. I mean, you know, uh, 
I don't think I've ever wanted a really life, an easy life, sorry, I don't think I've ever really wanted an easy life. And I think it's quite a romantic thing to actually want to be a singer in a band. But actually, it's a very, very difficult thing. I think it's a very unstable career. Um, and things that are nothing to do with you can have a massive effect on your career, massive effects on you. You know, I talked about Britpop in the early days and we obviously weren't Britpop. So we had to fight because we weren't Britpop and we weren't in the face of um, British rock music that people wanted to put out there. We were kind of running along outside it. Um, and so were so many different things, Bjork and Goldie. And, and I think also just because I was very, very different, I think... When you're different in those early years, the reason why you're different are also the things that make you successful. And in those early years, you kind of have to really, really fight for that because you're, you are different and you are a bit weird and it is going to be, take a lot longer for the public to get hold of you. But then once they get hold of you, they, you just explode because you become so much more, because of those differences, because you come, you're so much more exciting than, than the stuff that everybody else is getting. So, yeah, it's been a fight because we, because mainly because of, I guess having somebody like me fronting a rock band is a lot, is very odd for people. Um, and also just because we were, at the time we were making, we had much more of an American sound. So in those ways, it was just, it was just a bit of a fight in terms of everything we were doing. You know, our looks, our sound. Being political is always a very scary one or a dodgy one or a hard one for, you know, establishment radio to take on because, you know, they don't want... They want to be seen as partisan, so it's very difficult to be political within your music anyway and get radio playing and whatever. So, um, yeah, there were a lot of things that were piling yeah. up, but our viewpoint was... We just have to be 10 times better than everybody else and we have to just stick to what we believe in and stick to our sound. Because I think when you're doing something that you love when you're believing it, then it's authentic. But when you change your sound or change things because you're trying to tap onto what's popular, then you lose that authenticity and I think people can feel yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, how, how have you really stayed true to yourself in that way? Because, you know, the world's such a noisy place and everybody's got an opinion and everybody, as you just said there, wants you to fit into this box that they already understand and know. And you were never going to do that as a front woman or, you, you know, your band were never going to conform and, and do that. So I think many people out there want to live a really authentic life but feel so terrified because of outside judgment because of existing opinion how did yeah. you mitigate that and just how have you always stayed true to what to who you know you are for me i think the one thing that every human has but it's very difficult to read is your instincts you have to learn how to read your instincts and then you just once you've got there once you can understand and intrinsic, intrinsically feel where you're comfortable and where you're not. And if you can grab hold of that and stick to that, then you'll also have a clear route to your authenticity because it's about that feeling that you have in the back of the neck. And sometimes you're so, you want to be open, you want to, don't want to be close to certain things or certain people. But in actual fact, that little kind of tingling of, of your back of the neck, it's, it's, that's directing you where you should, you should be going. Um, and that was the thing that I've always had, that I've always believed in, that I've always stayed true to. And you've got to get outside of that just to test it every mm. now and then. You know, you can't just have an easy life, as you say. And easy, easy lives are boring. Who wants an easy life? I don't want an easy life. I want an intricate, complicated, fascinating life of experimentation. I don't want to sit there and have everything go well and go correctly and go great and all that kind of stuff. 
But yeah, instinct meant that I picked the right people to do, who've then gone on to pick other people, who've then gone on to pick other people that helps me get where we are, you know? Um, it's teamwork, it really is. But you've got to grab hold of those instincts first to pick those, that, for those very first beginning people. They're the most important for your career, I think, you know? And we, Skankanese, we still have the same team that we started with. The only person that we've actually changed was our accountant. But we still have the same lawyer, agent, same manager, Lee Johnson. She was the first person I picked. You know, I think it's very important to, to have some morals. And, and I think I've always picked people around me that, has, that put morals over everything else. And in some ways, that can mean that you have be, you're going to be less successful. But it means that you're always going to have a level of contentment within your soul that you know you did the right thing and you know you made the right decision. And you, that might lead you down... Um, parcel that might, you know, like I talked about my sexuality. If I hadn't come out, maybe I would have been marketed as the kind of sexy rock chick and, and then have to fight off all these boys or fight off this whole kind of straight girl image, you know? Um, I just was never going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I, I, I think that what we all look for as human people is, is, um, is, is contentment. You know, contentment is it's in some ways better than being happy because happy is like the peaks and trusts of it all. And you, nobody can, like you call your program happy place because it's like a happy place is a moment in time, but it's not there all of the time, but it's what you're kind of aiming for is those peaks, you know? So I've always aimed for, for con- contentment and, and being a leasing of a rock band is, as I say, it's a very romantic way to do it. But I love the, the sort of notion of perhaps collating a team of people. Cause I think that actually takes the, the heat off anybody whatever job you're doing or just you in your everyday life that if you've got the right people around you that are always going to be there to encourage you and to also collectively as you say do the right thing do the authentic thing rather than conform or please other people then that's actually I think it just takes the pressure off because it feels so loaded thinking oh my god I've got to always make the right decision to be authentic but if you're perhaps in a community, or you just have a good group of people around you, making those decisions is easier. But saying that, I don't want to in any way be reductive to what you've had to endure because it has been outside of the norm for a lot of people because not only are you in the public eye and have been for a very long time, you know, that, of course, then elevates the noise and, and what people are saying about you. But, you know, you've had to contend with people talking about your sexuality, talking about the colour of your skin, talking about the fact that you're a female lead singer. That's, that's a lot to carry. I, I have this analogy because this, this is the way I explain it for myself. Like... If you are confronted by someone who's racist or sexist or transphobic or, you know, just basically whatever they are, um, it's like they are uncomfortable with you being around and they have all of these issues and all the problems. And what they're doing is imagine those issues and that problem, that uncomfortability is a giant boulder, a giant rock. And what they're doing is handing you their rock. <laughs> you know, they're handing you this giant boulder of negativity. And my view was always like, uh, no, you can have that back. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I throw it back at them because like, I'm not going to carry the weight of all of your stuff, you know, on my shoulders. It's not up to me. It's not my burden. I'm fine with all those things. I'm happy. So you can have that straight back. And honestly, in the early days and even now, it's that simple. 
Um, I don't carry the weight of other people's racism or se- or sexism or homophobia or transphobia. I'm not carrying their weight for them because they can't carry it themselves. That you know, and that sense of them putting it onto you, it's like. And I was sort of viewed it like they're like this giant boulder in front of me, and it's a very simplistic approach to it, but actually it works quite well because I think it's important for me to be comfortable and happy and strong. And if I'm carrying all this weight, I just get weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker because it's impossible for me to carry all of the weight. So that was kind of all I dealt with. And I I think that even when things are going bad, like in the coronavirus right now, I think it's important to find your happy place and important to look for your happy place and important to stay comfortable within your stronger situation because... I always think it's like standing on quicksand or concrete. You know, when I'm feeling like I'm standing on quicksand, I I kind of withdraw from some of the charity work, some of the stuff that I'm doing, because I can't help those people until I'm standing back on concrete. Yes. Because I've seen a lot of that when people are having their own issues and then they're trying to help other people. It just doesn't work. You know, those other people end up helping them. Mm. So, yeah, and that's really it. I mean, in the book, when I write about being attacked outside my doorstep and getting over that, that gave me a lot of power and a lot of strength and, and showed me that I can kind of get over anything if I if I want to with myself and with help and just recognizing it. I I mean, I, it's kind of like my friend was telling me the other day that um, her um, child didn't want to learn to ride a bike because when he went to bike school and he was only like eight or something like that. And when he came back off the biking trip and he hadn't learned to ride a bike, she's like, right, we're going outside and you're going to learn how to ride this bike now. And he did. He learned how to ride the bike and he was so happy. You know, she said he had this change in himself because he was like, I did it. And then she saw him use that as an eight-year-old in lots of other situations because once he'd overcome riding a bike, he realised that if he could do that, he can do anything. And he's eight years old. And, and, I, and, I, and that, that, I, that's what happened to me, I think, quite a few times. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I mean, that, that story in the book that you just mentioned is, is, is an incredibly powerful moment. So you'd, you'd been attacked, you know, this guy had horrifically attacked you in the street and then started to stalk you. And, and on one occasion, this switch went in you and you just thought, enough's enough, I, I'm, I'm going to confront this guy. Yeah. I mean, cognitively, what was happening there? You, you just hit a wall, you reached a peak where you thought, I can't deal with this anymore. Yeah, that yeah. again is like hugely courageous to, to stand up to someone that's been sort of, you know, massively limiting your life because you didn't feel safe stepping out your front door. Again, I'm sort of fascinated with with that switch that happened within you and, and, and where that strength came it, from. You know, I was... He he whispered in my ear, stalked to me again, whispered in my ear, I know where you live, I know you're with. And I turned and I ran away from him, ran down the street. And as I was running, I kept going over in my head, and I remember this very, very distinctly. 
this is going to keep happening. This is going to keep happening. And it's that way that you say the same sentences, but the way that you say the sentence changed. So it was like, this is going to keep happening. 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 You know, and I got angry and angry and angrier with myself and with the situation. And at, by the end of the road, I was absolutely furious. And I turned around and I ran back and I was just in a rage. And it was a temper that I hadn't seen in myself since I was a young, young child. And, you know, when you're a child, you have to learn how to, you know, curb your temper. Otherwise, you, you know, you, you grow up with that. It's very dangerous. And I just lost my temper with myself and with the situation. And I had this very sense of, like, I cannot live my life like this. I cannot live my life in fear. And the more I said it, this is going to keep happening. And I turned around and I was, I was just in a rage. And if, I don't know, it's like those comic, those, it's like the Tom and Jerry where you see the big giant shrivel down to little mouths, you know? And I saw this person who I saw as this gigantic guy that had abused me, that was going to always abuse me. I watched him literally shrivel in front of my eyes. And I was the giant and he was the little mouse. And I realized that I was afraid of the idea and I'd given him all this power over me because I was afraid of the idea of being attacked by him. And he was loving that. He was really enjoying this, this, this fear and this control he had over me and the fact that he'd done this and now he, you know, he was so empowered by that. And once I turned my, my head on it, he was just a little chicken shit, you know, he just couldn't handle it and he scuttled away and ran away. And that was it. That was, it was that, that repetition in my head. That, that left you with a fearlessness that, that never left you. And, yeah. And yeah. I wonder if you think that, because, you know, I'm sure all of us now want to feel fearless in, there's certain situations that will scare the crap out of all of us and, and it will stop us doing things. I've certainly got things like that in my life that I know will trigger a panic attack or whatever and, and I and I sometimes wonder what am I going to do to remedy that but I feel from reading your book that the solution is in just doing it do the thing that scares you the most and keep practicing it and that is perhaps fearlessness absolutely um it's confronting it isn't it and I think we're both in industries that we're being judged all of the time. And I think you, you kind of in some ways have to shut those, those voices down because I think that we're very used to, you know, I say it in the book, we take on negativity like it's our best friend, but all the positive stuff we just keep away and shunt aside. And sometimes I think you have to swap it around the other way, you know? Um, like for instance, I never ever read any fan mail because even if it was good, I didn't want to hear things about myself from people who didn't know me you know, and didn't understand yeah. me. And that's different from having supportive people around you. Because um, sometimes people would write things that were supposed to be really nice, but actually weren't, <laughs> you know. And yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You know, I love how ugly you look. It's great that a woman can look so ugly and feel so proud about it. I'm like, uh, thanks for the compliment, but maybe no thanks. <laughs> well, it's so, also utter yeah. rubbish if anyone ever did put that because you're <laughs> bloody gorgeous. But what, I mean, how do you deal with that? Like when, when people are, you know, if you're in the public eye or not, people are going to make assumptions about you. People in your friendship circle, people at work, people at the school gates will will either look at you or engage on a level of communication and make assumptions. For you, that's magnified. How have you navigated not letting that impact you at all? Well, you know, you can't change what little things people are going to think about you and say about you and, you know, the, the kind of obvious 
um, stereotypes that people are going to have. And I think I have this very strong sense of I know who I am and I've got there through trial and error over many, many, many years. And I'm sticking with that, you know? Um, yeah. We all make mistakes and I'm not going to be portrayed as anything else and I'm not going to believe anything else other than the person I know to be true. You know, and I think having great friends is really important. Having a great partner is really important in that because, you know, um, sometimes you just have to turn around to them and say, well, that's not who you are, though, is it? So don't believe it. Um, yeah. And I think that's a very simple thing. I know who I am and I'm not how I'm being portrayed by one comment I made. You know, you can be portrayed by your who you've been with or who your friends are or something might have said. And all of a sudden, you know, the social media wants to portray you as just that. And mm. I have a very strong sense of like, that's not who I am. I know who I am. And yeah. I'm sticking to that. Yeah. And I think, again, it's this, don't, I just don't carry the weight of other people's issues and, and other people's judgments. And, you know, if I feel that someone hasn't got um, enough experience to actually give a qualified opinion, then I don't listen to the opinion. I just don't. Yeah. I love, well, it's just completely sensible and grounded in common sense. And I felt like so many of the things that you talk about in the book, you, you very much come from that place. So when you've talked about intuition already, but in a similar way, when you talk about self-love, you, you know, you say that it, it comes with age and experience, but also that's about practice because we can all get into, yeah. and we probably are all in terribly bad habits of either looking in the mirror or doing an action that we you know habitually lean on and go god I hate myself for doing that or I hate this about what I see in the mirror but actually it's for you it's been very much about practice practicing that self-love rather than just expecting it to turn up one day because you've you know bought a magic potion or whatever yeah and no one's going to give it to me either mm. you know no one's going to give you your own self-love you have to kind of growing it yourself and I mean it's like when people say to me um oh whenever I read anything that says yes just love yourself I just think oh please how's how are you supposed to do that how, how does that happen how are you just gonna love yourself when you look in the mirror nobody does sometimes you do sometimes you don't it's it's not a constant thing and and I just think that's just you know normal and it's just everyone's like that and we shouldn't feel pressured to be loving ourselves for this, that and the other. I mean, I talked about in a book about when I was growing up, I was I, I get my name skinny from being super, super skinny. Um, and in Jamaican culture, it's not a good thing. <laughs> you know, being maga is not a good thing. Um, and it's only when I got older that I kind of love that part of myself because I realized that just that's just the shape I am. You know, and that's just who I am. And we have all this kind of emphasis on how wonderful it is that people are big. And I think that is fantastic. I wish I had that, you know, when we were growing up. And I also wish from the other scale of it is not everybody skinny wants to be skinny. <laughs> you know, not everyone is thin wants to be super thin and is comfortable with, with that. And I think that sometimes it's like it, you get these extremes of this is great, but then this still isn't. You know? mm. um, and that's also something I had to, to grow into. And everyone may be sitting there going, oh, well, you know, it's all right for you. It's all right for you. It's like, well, no, not really, because in my culture, it wasn't all right to be skinny. It was a negative thing to be skinny. And everyone was trying to feed me up. And I grew up with this very negative um, idea that being skinny was really bad um, because of my culture and because of the culture I was raised in. I think that's, it is such a good point about 
you know, like you say, it's not going to be this overnight thing that you just go, I love myself, but by really practicing that and, and it becoming part of your, your day that, you know, you celebrate who you are and that you will, and going back to what we've talked about with authenticity, that you, you inherently understand who you are without outside influence. It's so important. Um, there, of course, have been some amazingly positive moments of influence in your life. And there are some incredible stories that align with that thinking. One of my favourite stories of the whole book was when Judy Dench um, turned up at your school. And, yeah. <laughs> and again, it seems like you've had these sort of seminal moments where a switch goes off in you and it taps into something that was already yeah. there, but perhaps lying dormant. Do you mind telling that story yeah, for us? Yeah, I mean, can you imagine that... Um, I, I, mean, I think I was 13, 12 or 13, and Judy Dench was in this the Royal National Theatre um, troupe that was touring schools. And... Anybody who's an actor out there, please keep doing this. Just have like a few months where you just go into schools and act because it's life changing for those kids. I mean, I remember that we were in our big assembly hall and we all sat down in a, in a circle and they were in the center of the circle and they all had on these black kind of covered outfits and gowns and there were no props. So they were miming everything. They carried nothing with them but their outfits. And it was Macbeth. And I had loved Shakespeare as a child. I, you know, it was weird. I mean, this little girl from Brixton understands Macbeth and Shakespeare. So I just got it. I just understood the language and I was loving and I was reading all these um, Shakespeare, Shakespeare's books. And so there's this moment, you know, she's one of the witches, fair is foul and foul is fair. And she's something, she's devastated and she picks up this, this, this thing and she just lets out this scream and it lasted for about 30 seconds or a minute, but it was like a blood curdling, you know, it was like, like that, but it went on forever. And it was just, she was, it was, it felt like she was emptying her soul and and from the ancestors of a hundred thousand years back you know and she just emptied herself of this scream and I was just like wow how did she make that sound and I was the the whole play the way they did the play with miming and getting it all over it was unbelievable it was the best piece of theatre I've ever seen and I still remember it and that something in me was like I want to be able to like let let go of my soul like scream like that in front of kids and nobody cares and no one's going to judge her everyone's just going to think she's brilliant because I think when you're a kid you're so concerned with what all the other kids are thinking and feeling about you oh yeah you know you're, you're, you're so obsessed about your fears your peers and she just, just let it out and you know, if I ever see Judy Dench, I'm going to be like, you changed, you changed me. <laughs> you changed yes. my life. Because yes. it was, it's not that I wanted to be an actress. It's just that I wanted to do what I wanted to do without fear. And that moment kept coming back to me. I'm, from that, I started having these dreams of being on stage with my microphone and screaming like Judy Dench. <laughs> wow. I mean, I think so, again, like, if you think about how little girls grow up, especially, you know, we are told more so than, than little boys to, you know, be nice and be sweet and perhaps be quiet. I mean, all kids are told at some point to be quiet. That's kind of how it goes. But I think growing up female, you do feel a lot of time that, you know, you perhaps can't release that blood curdling sound. You can't, you know, release that sort of rage. And, And the only thing I can liken it to, personally is when I was in labor with my daughter I was 
an animal. I was literally roaring wow. and I didn't give a toss. I didn't care yeah, yeah. what the doctor thought. I It was just this innate need to get this noise out and it felt incredible and I think <laughs> we don't we don't give anybody the time or the space to do that to be yeah, animalistic yeah. and to to feel rather than just sort of articulate and be thoughtful just to like let rip and let that out of us and I think that's so amazing that Judy Dench turn up at your school and then flick this switch for you to then seek that out I just think that is the coolest story and so powerful and we somehow need to encourage everybody of, of whatever age to just let rip and let it out and yeah. be wild. I mean, I, I did a lot of sports and that was another way that I would just kind of release my angst, you know, mm. um, by just, I used to run cross country. I did javelin discus. Um, I was basically a long distance runner, like uh, 1500s and upwards. And that was one way I could just run and I could just be like, ah, when I, yeah. when I saw that finish line, I just used to go like, ah, it's nearly finished, ah. Um, and expend that energy because as kids and as women, we have so much energy and where we have all these societal things that kind of puts us in a box about how we use it and how we express it. So, um, yeah, I mean, I can, I can, I can identify with that, with your duty judge moment of having a baby. You must be like, oh my God, get this out of me. Yeah, lib- <laughs> it was liberating, totally liberating. And, and also I think, you know, I, I feel, I feel a sense of it quite often because one of my default emotions and I've talked about this on the podcast before is anger you know I I I get these I had it this weekend you know these sort of surges of anger about a situation I I feel out of control in or or whatever else is going in my life and and again I think um we're kind of taught to contain that men can kind of you know probably be a bit more brash about it or or fight or whatever but for women it it seems like we're not really sure what to do with it so for me again getting physical like say running or boxing whatever I need to I need to expel it like get it out but but maybe I could just go in the garden and let out a wild Judy Dench scream and that would do the job I've not tried that yet (laughs) that might be the next thing I I give a go of of that Um, I think that's so cool um another thing I wanted to talk to you about as we sort of get to the end of this, unfortunately, I've just looked at the time and gone, bloody hell, how has that whizzed by? Oh my God. But, but yeah. all of these amazing influences that, that sort of brought you to the point of, of becoming the artist that you are, it, it feels from reading the book that the sense of freedom that you experienced when you were visiting family in Jamaica really kind of perhaps pushed you into wanting to seek that out in other ways when you when you got home I don't know if I've sort of translated that correctly but it felt like you experienced something there and you wanted it in a different form when you got back to the UK yeah I mean you know Jamaica was really liberating because we were you know I was born up a city little urban kid um, and then suddenly I'm in the fields of Jamaica climbing coconut trees with nobody watching us um, running around barefoot and I think that it that that really showed me that there was a different way to life. I mean, that, and to be quite honest, Top of the Pops. Yeah. <laughs> Top of the Pops was like this, like, little window that I thought I could climb through at certain points, like um, Alice in Wonderland, climbing through the looking glass, and, and just seeing that there were people doing other things that were very new to me, were completely different. I mean, in Jamaica, just, like, realising that coconuts were 
weren't these brown little hard fur, you know, like rough things that they were that de- actually massive and green and coconut fish was soft that you could spoon it out. I mean, I was a, I was a kid from Vixen. I'd never experienced that. That was what a real coconut was like. Not realising that it was the same thing. Mm. When it got back to London, it'd been skinned and it had been dried up. And, you know, all the flesh had gone hard, which was still delicious. But spooning out coconut flesh from a bit of the husk from outside sitting down you know in a field in Jamaica you know you just never you never lose that mm. feeling of like this is just like heaven mm. that's this that's another happy place mm, <laughs> I know I've got to go there it's on my wish list one day once all this COVID stuff's out of the way and we can start traveling again it is absolutely on my hot list I know it's, um, it's crazy mm. I could talk to you all day skin this has been an absolute privilege to have you on and to to try and understand the the courage and and just how your mind works because I've always I've been long fascinated with with you know your artistry and and how you've expressed yourself and reading your book was again another chance to get insight into that so thank you so much for writing it so cheers thank you thank you no problem Oh, Skin, thank you. See, well, you knew she was amazing already, but look, she's even more amazing. And that scream, oh, it gave me goosebumps. I'm chilled thinking about it. Thank you, Skin. Do get her book. It's such a good read. It takes blood and guts, available in all good bookshops. Tell your friends about the show too. Help spread the joy. Take their phone off them and secretly subscribe them if you can. I would really like that. Sneakiness. They will thank you later. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts and more besides. And don't forget to wash your hands after. Thanks again to Skin, to my producer Matt Hill at Rethink Audio and you lovely lot for being, well, so lovely. See you next week. are on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns